Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dr. Ryan Maves. I'm an infectious disease physician and intensivist practicing in San Diego, California. And thank you all for joining us for the ongoing CHEST COVID-19 webinar series. Today, we're going to be discussing COVID-19 clinical trial updates with a focus on vaccines, on medical therapy, and on the management and prevention of thrombosis. We're very fortunate to have three expert speakers with us today, Dr. Julie Ake from the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, Dr. Lisa Bauman-Kreuziger from Medical College of Wisconsin, and Dr. Tomasz Shakmani from Royal Gwent Hospital in the United Kingdom. Uh, with that all too brief introduction, let me begin by introducing Dr. Julie Ake, who will speak to us about vaccine development and advances in COVID vaccination. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Julie Ake is an internist and infectious diseases physician in the United States Army. She is the director of the U.S. Military HIV Research Program at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, where she advances the development of HIV vaccine candidates. Uh, Colonel Ake is also the DOD prep deputy principal overseeing Army implementation of PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, across military and civilian populations in Nigeria, Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania. She is also a clinical lead for a project coordination team for COVID-19 vaccine development under Operation Warp Speed. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce my dear friend, Dr. Ake, who will talk to us about vaccines. After you. Thanks so much, Ryan. I really appreciate the opportunity to join this group. Okay. So um, today I'll be providing a brief overview of late stage SARS-CoV-2 or SARS-2 vaccine development. Uh, I don't have any conflicts of interest to report. All opinions are my own. Could go to the next slide. Today we'll touch on the vaccine landscape and the emerging model of accelerated vaccine advancement. Also, we'll review the various vaccine platforms that are being tested and discuss select phase one data. Finally, I'll touch on some important biological and safety issues that will help us answer the important question, will all this actually work? I'd like to say that the SARS-2 vaccine landscape features a plethora of products, a multiverse of approaches, and a panoply of players. Um, so in, as of two days ago, you can see that over 135 vaccines were in preclinical studies. 41 were in various stages of clinical testing, including eight in efficacy, and two had been approved. For those who might be surprised to learn that there are already two approved vaccines, those are in China and Russia. The CanSino BioVaccine, which is an adenovirus serotype 5 vectored vaccine, or AD5 vaccine, was approved by the Chinese military on June 25th for a year, as a specially needed drug. On August 11th, Russia approved their Sputnik V product um, before entering phase three trials. Um, we'll go ahead and move to the next slide, thanks. The various vaccine platforms being employed really do comprise a multiverse of vaccine approaches from next generation mRNA technology to old school protein subunits and inactivated virus vaccines no immunologic stone is being left unturned. And there is no shortage of opinions about how the vaccine effort should be coordinated. <laughs> NIAID, NIH, HHS, BARDA, and DOD are just part of the US government alphabet soup that's coalesced together under Operation Warp Speed, or OWS. CEPI's played a critical role in early development with the Gates Foundation, a significant funder as well. The WHO weighs in, and for us anyway, the FDA always gets the final say. Various strategies for standard approaches to allow for cross-product comparability have been propagated. The key word is harmonize. It really is critical. We won't see this in the early phase one data that we'll review. This reflects non-standardized endpoints, non-standardized assays, but we are starting to see some convergence of these elements for efficacy testing through OWS. And this will be really important as we try to compare multiple products moving to efficacy testing. Another common theme is speed. As you can see here, typical vaccine development timelines exceed 10 years. Compare that to now, OWS launched May 15th as Moderna was going into phase one on May 16th and by July 27th, Moderna was in phase three. That trial is rapidly enrolling and at least six additional candidates are to launch phase three in quick succession with approximately 30,000 participants each. These massive trials are industry led and sponsored and are typically collaborations with the newly formed Coronavirus Prevention Network. The CoVPN is an amalgamation of NIAID clinical trials networks, it's led by Larry Corey at the Hutch in Seattle and Kathy Nuzel at the University of Maryland. 
the HVTN, HPTN, ACTG, and IDC or C networks are all contributing sites with additional support from the VA and military treatment facilities, along with many sites provided by the contract research organizations that are supporting the trials. Thanks to Kayvon Mojared for this really helpful slide reviewing vaccine platforms. So we can just go ahead and advance through this. First out of the gate in the US, we have um, mRNA candidates from Moderna and BioNTech, which has partnered with Pfizer. CureVac has an mRNA construct and Inovio, a DNA vaccine with electroporation. These vaccines are very quick to manufacture. However, thus far, there are no FDA licensed mRNA or DNA vaccines. Viral vectored vaccines are very scalable. Most are non-replicating. The Oxford chimpanzee adenovirus vaccine, as well as the Janssen Ad26 platform, that's a subset of J&J Janssen is, um, have been leveraged uh, here for coronavirus. And some products we think have the potential to protect with a single dose. The inactivated vaccine strategy has produced licensed vaccines in the past. However, concern for enhanced respiratory disease has limited their development by US and European countries. Protein subunit vaccines paired with potent adjuvants are another tried and true strategy. Manufacture is slower and can be challenging. And I have to get a shout out to the Rare, which has developed its own twist on a standard subunit vaccine with a ferritin nanoparticle. Uh, Sanofi and Novavax, though, have the leading platforms there. We can go ahead and move on. So with the exception of the whole virus inactivated or attenuated vaccines, all these products have the same epitope, the spike glycoprotein, which is so conveniently exposed on the surface of the virion. I mean, it's just hanging out there like, hi, antibodies, I'm here, <laughs> makes this a very, as we say, vaccinable target. Move on to the next slide. And then we'll go through the select results that have been released from phase one testing. We'll start with the viral vector vaccines. So AstraZeneca is developing the Oxford Chadox-1 chimpanzee adenovirus vectored vaccine, which has a wild type spike insert. This platform has been employed by the Oxford group for a number of pathogens to include HIV and Ebola. They conducted a large phase one, two study enrolling over a thousand participants and randomized them to their SARS-2 vaccine or meningitis vaccine. The early safety results, which include 10 participants who received a boost after 28 days, are reassuring. However, this is a very reactogenic vaccine and so pre-dose paracetamol is widely employed. Here we can see the binding antibody results, which show that a second dose improved responses. And with a second dose, IgG titers reached the level seen in convalescent plasma. With the neutralizing antibody results, we see multiple different live nude assays. And here, um, you can see that, again, there is improved responses with the prime and the boost, um, and you're starting to approach, um, or even some favorable, favorable comparability um, with the convalescent plasma. Next, the new kid on the block, nucleic acid vaccines, specifically mRNA, which is encoding the coronavirus spike peptide. The mRNA is encased in liposomes, which enter cells and then harness the cell's machinery to produce the viral proteins, which then elicit immune responses like antibodies or T-cell responses. This is very cool. It's just unproven in humans so far. The Moderna mRNA-1273 encodes a modified spike protein. Barney Graham and colleagues at the NIAID Vaccine Research Center developed the S2P antigen construct. This is a stabilized pre-fusion confirmation which has improved immunogenicity, and many of the other vaccine constructs now take the same approach. AstraZeneca, which has a wild-type insert, is a notable exception. The Moderna product team enrolled 45 participants in their first-in-human phase one at three doses and administered vaccine or placebo on days one and 29. The vaccine was safe, but reactogenicity was dose limiting at 250 micrograms. This slide combines ELISA titers to the S2P and receptor binding domain antigens, and both pseudovirus newt and plaque reduction live newt assay results. Important takeaways are that the 250 microgram dose afforded little additional immunogenicity over the 100 microgram dose that responses are increased significantly with the boost and that post-boost responses, at least for binding antibodies, exceeded those in convalescent specimens. The dose that has moved forward to phase three is 100 micrograms. 
Next up is the protein subunit vaccine. This strategy immunizes with a portion of the pathogen commonly mixed with an adjuvant to enhanced immune responses. Here, an illustrative vaccine is the Novavax product, which is a recombinant nanoparticle vaccine constructed from full-length spike protein with SP2 modifications. And it's optimized in their baculovirus expression system. It's combined with a saponin-based lipid adjuvant called Matrix M. This is in the same general class of adjuvant as ASO1B, which is in the licensed Shingrix vaccine. So Andrew Ward's team at Scripps executes some really lovely structural work characterizing the vaccine, which you can now see on bioarchives. You can see the trimeric spike proteins present as free trimers or as multi-trimer rosettes, and these spike nanoparticles contain as many as 14 trimers. The matrix M adjuvant can be seen as spherical cages. The cryo-EM map of free trimers show the spike in prefusion state and the receptor binding domain in close conformation. Novavax took this product into phase one in Australia, where they enrolled 131 participants and randomized to vaccine or placebo, looking at 25 or five microgram doses of protein with or without five, um, sorry, 50 micrograms of the matrix M adjuvant. There were two doses on days zero and 21. In addition to favorable safety data, the phase one preliminary immunogenicity results are promising. You can see here with binding on the right and neutralizing antibody responses on the left, there is a significant increase in responses with the boost and equivalent responses in the five and 25 microgram adjuvanted arms showing the dose sparing effect of the matrix M. Responses in these groups also appear to exceed those in convalescent sera. The Emerging Infectious Diseases Branch at the Rare, led by Kayvon Mojarid, with significant design contributions from Gordon Joyce, is advancing a novel spike protein ferritin nanoparticle, or SPIFIN. This construct displays eight spike trimers with the S2P modification. It's combined with the ALF-Q army-owned saponin-based adjuvant, and it will be moving into phase one in late 2020. So next slide. We've seen a lot of great science, but you know, in the end you may wonder, is this all actually going to work? And so there are a few considerations that are worth addressing along these lines. The first is how amenable is SARS-2 to vaccine development? So far, the answer seems to be very. It survives as a pathogen by its ease of transmission, not because of the ability to foil the immune system. As Mike Farzan has said, in the school of immune evasion, HIV is an absolute genius. Influenza is an honor student but SARS-2 is a dunce. <laughs> As we discussed earlier, the spike protein is very prominent on the surface of the virion, facilitating binding to the ACE2 receptor, but also presenting a great target for antibody binding and neutralization. It also has a very high fidelity polymerase and limited sequence diversity, unlike HIV, for example, which has tremendous heterogeneity that can be seen even within a single infected individual. The phylogenetic trees depicted here show this vast diversity in comparison to the little speck that is SARS-2. So vaccines should work. But you may say, I have read that SARS-2 is mutating. Mutating, I say. <laughs> is that a problem? Well, I've heard it said that the words viral mutation are like pornography to science writers. We expect a certain amount of mutation in any outbreak, and it rarely has significant impact. So this is not something to get too concerned about, at least from a vaccine development standpoint. Um, an exhaustive analysis by the Roland group, this, we've gone to the next slide, of all published sequences, um, the group looked at it with 18,000 published sequences and then repeated it um, with a, a 29,000. And they found um, that uh, the limited SARS-2 diversity documented thus far is most consistent with epidemiologic and fondorous effects and not due to host um, adaptations. One mutation in the spite a D614G has taken hold as a prevalent difference between current strains and the original sequence in the vaccines. Structurally, this mutation's at the interface of two subunits, and we would not expect this to be part of an epitope for vaccine-mediated protection. If you move on to the next slide, we can see that indeed 614G does not impact neutralizing sensitivity. If anything, it's more sensitive, although it may increase transmissibility. So bottom line for vaccine development anyway, Mutation, mutation. Finally, there are some well-recognized safety pitfalls with coronavirus vaccine development. We worry about antibody-dependent antibody -dependent enhancement as is seen with flaviviruses like dengue. 
This happens when virus antibody complexes have increased binding to cells that have FC receptors, triggering virus entry into the cells and thereby actually promoting infection. This can be mitigated with effective virus neutralization. We also worry about vaccine-associated enhanced respiratory disease. This is a distinct clinical syndrome that was seen in children during the evaluation of whole inactivated viral vaccines for measles and RSV. Immunizing with limiting doses of RSV antigens, particularly poorly designed ones, caused two phenomena. One was a high ratio of binding to neutralizing antibody, which then results in more immune complex deposition and complement activation. This was associated with inflammation and airway, airway obstruction in a 1966 trial of a formal and inactivated RSV vaccine. The other phenomenon is that these vaccines could result in allergic inflammation, which then causes increased mucus production, airway hyperresponsiveness, increased eosinophil recruitment, and decreased cytolytic T cell activity, together described as a Th2 biased response. It is important to note that in almost all the preclinical and clinical cases where a vaccine-associated enhanced respiratory disease has been demonstrated, the product was a whole inactivated vaccine. Thankfully, however, as we reviewed, leading candidate vaccines in the U.S. are not whole inactivated vaccines, and they've elicited robust neutralizing antibody responses. Also, and I didn't have the chance to show this data, but ICS results from phase one studies to date have demonstrated a Th1 predominant response. So in summary, the COVID vaccine pipeline is robust with a diversity of platforms. We've really seen the might of global vaccine development harnessed. Um, you know, really harnessed to, in a harmonized way, achieve a trials effort that's really unprecedented in scale, scope, and pace. The initial safety and immunogenicity data so far in humans is promising. Um, this is a pathogen that should be conducive to vaccine prevention. Um, the expected viral evolution of SARS is unlikely to foil vaccine efficacy, and the risk of safety pitfalls can be mitigated with applications of lessons learned. The proof, obviously, though, will be in the pudding. Phase three efficacy trials are designed to inform many of these outstanding questions, and we hope for multiple winners to facilitate widespread vaccine distribution. So in closing, I'd just like to thank, again, the organizers and the contributors to this presentation and those who have supported my involvement in SARS-2 vaccine trials. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> thank you very much, Julie. That was fantastic. Um, we will have time for all of the attendees. Uh, if you'd like to submit questions either via the chat or preferably via the Q&A, we'll curate these and then get them to our speakers to review after we're done with the three presentations. So please feel free to submit any questions you may have. Our next speaker will be Dr. Lisa Bauman-Kreuziger. She is an associate investigator at the Blood Research Institute of Versity and a, an associate professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She specializes in thrombosis. Uh, in her centers. She's the co-founder of the Venus Thromboembolism Network in the U.S., or Venus, a network of clinical investigators focused on VTE research. She serves on the NIH COVID-19 guideline panel and on the American College of Chest Physicians antithrombotic therapy for VTE disease guideline panel as well. It's my pleasure to uh, once again introduce Dr. Lisa Bellman-Kreuziger. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to present today and talk about some updates in thrombosis. Next slide. So I'm going to break this into three parts and discussing different patient populations. So we'll start with hospitalized ward patients. Next. So there have been multiple studies that have been published now that have looked at the incidence of thrombosis and some looking at major bleeding in our hospitalized patients uh, with COVID-19. As you can see noted here that there are varying estimates um, so as low as none, no uh, proximal DVT found, um, up to 12.7% up to uh, uh, when we look at both DVT and PE. Only one of the current published articles have looked at major bleeding in hospitalized ward patients and noting a risk of 3%. three Just to give you some uh, area of, of comparison, prior inpatient trials of medically ill patients in a randomized control uh, fashion have found symptomatic uh, DVT and PE at 0.3 to 1% and a combination of symptomatic and asymptomatic events between 2 to 5.6%. Now the difference here though is all of our COVID-19 studies so far are retrospective cohorts and unfortunately we do not have any randomized trial uh, data yet. Next slide. 
Just to also point out there is significant bias um, in our observational studies, and we've seen that in the treatment uh, side. But to speak about the anticoagulation aspect, there is significant confounding by indication. So if some people are treated with blood thinners and others are not, uh, there's a reason that doctors prescribe those anticoagulants. And those reasons need to be taken into consideration for their risk of thrombosis. There are many unmeasured confounders and other treatments that are given to these patients and their influence on the risk of thrombosis need to be considered as well. But unfortunately, they're not often reported in all of these retrospective studies. And then lastly, when we're discovering or discussing some patients who have received anticoagulation and other patients who are not, who have not received anticoagulation and trying to compare their outcomes, one of the most important bias that's out there is immortal time bias. And to explain that a little bit more, um, patients have to then uh, live long enough to be in that anticoagulated group. So if, if you are retrospectively looking at people and, and dividing them into people who had anticoagulation and who didn't, anybody who died early in that hospitalization will be assigned to the no anticoagulation group. And anybody who is then lives long enough to be anticoagulated, they are then allowed to be in the other group. And that immortal time between hospitalization and the time that they started anticoagulation is attributed to the anticoagulation when that is not true. So something to really consider when we are looking at these retrospective studies in order to understand the biases that may be present. Next slide. So we do need clinical trials and many clinical trials are now available uh, for anticoagulation in our COVID-19 uh, positive patients. And some of them, the ones that have, are actively recruiting are noted here. I will make a note that the comparison in all of these trials is prophylactic anticoagulation. So that is our standard of care. And really the informed consent is the difference between research and empiric treatment. Next. So many societies have now uh, given recommendations and here are some of the alphabet soup of anticoagulation or thrombosis societies. Um, and all of them have recommended prophylactic anticoagulation for our patients who are hospitalized on the wards. Next. We'll move on to critically ill patients. So just as a, a comparison, um, prior uh, randomized control trials have found VTE incidence of six to 16% in when you look at all critically ill patients. Uh, there is one specific uh, sepsis cohort that's looked at um, in ICU patients, and they found a much higher incidence of VTE in that unique patient population, up to 37%, uh, and major bleeding uh, low at 1.7%. Next slide. Now, to compare to what's been published for COVID-19, again, you see a wide variety of incidents uh, for VTE, anywhere from 7.7% up to 47% of patients having uh, venous thromboembolism uh, with COVID-19 while in the ICU. Major bleeding, again, has not been reported very frequently in these studies, but uh, significant ranges, including 2.7 up to 10.6. And I did put some markers within this, um, the blue line suggesting what randomized control trial uh, levels have been before, as well as sepsis. Um, in the red line. As expected, once data is presented, people try to push it together and to see if there's estimates of all of it. Uh, and one published meta-analysis of, of this data has suggested that depending upon which modeling system you use, uh, rates between 27 to 31%. But I would, again, note all of the biases that are, that are inherent in, these, in the baseline studies that are going into this. And when you also see these very large ranges, uh, you wonder, uh, are there different ICU criteria that be, are being used? So these are all critically ill patients, but is that definition different in these hospitals? Again, what other treatment have they been receiving and does that influence the risk for thrombosis? And then also, is there a difference in threshold for testing? So our, uh, some of the studies actually used screening, ultrasounds, um, but also are there some institutions that can get testing easier where um, maybe some institutions are not able to, and maybe that's the reason for very low incidence in those, in those hospitals. Unfortunately, the, the trials and the, and the published data doesn't give us a lot of that detail. Next. 
So the society recommendations are a little more mixed on this uh, topic. And so several of them have recommended prophylactic anticoagulation for critically ill patients as well. On the inter uh, some of the societies though have suggested or noted to potentially consider um, higher doses, meaning intermediate doses. And for most institutions, that's double the dose of prophylactic anticoagulation. So instead of giving anoxaparin once a day, you would give it twice a day um, as an intermediate dose. But again, that is only noted as a potential suggestion or half of the groups uh, noted that. So standard of care is prophylaxis and in higher risk patients, some of the institutions suggest that uh, you could go up from there. Next. Lastly, I'll talk about extended prophylaxis uh, for VTE at discharge. So there have been uh, two studies that have been presented either in abstract form and actually have been published now. Um, originally, we had didn't have any information about how high of a risk patients with COVID-19 after hospital discharge had for venous thrombosis. Um, of the two studies from uh, Europe that have been published to date, it does look to be small, um, less than 1%. Um, we don't know the bleeding risks of our patients with COVID-19. That was not noted. Um, and we can, though, somewhat try to extrapolate from the trials of non-COVID-19 patients. These are medically ill patients. And those trials have shown with extended prophylaxis that the reduction in VTE and VTE death um, with a 40% reduction with a number needed to treat of 250 people. But we do know that extended prophylaxis in those studies do increase the risk for major bleeding by two. Next slide. The problem really is how do I identify those really high risk patients? Um, one of the studies that, you, er, that used for rivaroxaban have looked at the improved VTE score and modified that with D-dimer. And you can see the uh, criteria there for the improved VTE score, some of which is very easy to obtain from the uh, medical chart and some is very difficult. For example, what, how do you denote complete immobilization and, and how do you get that out of the, the medical record? We know from the two trials that have looked at uh, rivaroxaban that VTE does go down with uh, a, a post-hoc sub-analysis of Magellan trial that led to approval of rivaroxaban for VTE prophylaxis for medically ill patients um, after hospital discharge. Next. Most of the societies do not recommend extended prophylaxis, um, but there is a consideration in several of them if there are patients who have a high VTE risk, if you can identify those patients, um, and a low bleeding risk. Next. So most importantly, again, as we need studies and the Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines Program or the ACTIVE program is looking at anticoagulation as well. Um, as noted before, there's NIH partners, industry partners and Operation Warp Speed. And the ACTIVE-4 is focusing on anticoagulation. So we're looking at to see if anticoagulation obviously prevents blood clots, but also worsening of organ damage and we're developing master pro protocols for patients at diagnosis, uh, so not hospitalized patients, patients at hospitalization, and then at hospital discharge as well. The inpatient protocol is the furthest along and, and has already been noted um, and up on clinicaltrials.gov uh, and will hopefully be opening uh, very soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was wonderful. And again, uh, the Q&A is open for questions, so please feel free. There have been a number of great ones coming. Uh, our third speaker will be an update on clinical trials with a focus on drug therapy. Our speaker is Dr. Tomas, uh, excuse me, Dr. Tomas Sakmani, who is joining us from the Royal Hospital uh, in Gwent, where he serves, excuse me, we're Royal Gwent Hospital. I apologize. Forgive me, Tomas. Uh, he is a consultant in intensive care medicine and is the research lead for the COVID-19 clinical trials for his organization. He's also an honorary senior lecturer at Cardiff University and his own research interests at the time are currently revolving around sepsis biomarkers and long-term ICU outcomes. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you and take it away. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, 
thanks for the kind invitation. Uh, my talk is uh, about clinical trials evidence in COVID-19. So it is a shorter talk than, than you think, because you will see what is the evidence available. What I'm not going to talk about here is any observational data, case series, or, or uh, before, after cohorts. Uh, I'm going to talk about what is available as clinical trials evidence, both in published and in, in pre-published format. Uh, my conflict of interest has been mentioned by, by Ryan, um, and uh, that is that I'm leading uh, a number of the COVID-19 RCTs in, in my organization. So uh, I have been involved with, uh, with the recovery study and, uh, uh, and the REMAP-CAP trial. Um, and I will talk about one of them a, a little bit more in detail. Can I have the next slide, please? So I would like to introduce you Mark, uh, who is a remarkably uh, similar patient that we have seen in, uh, in the Welsh hospitals and in the UK hospitals uh, during our first wave. Mark is uh, 69 years old. He's got arthritis. He had total knee replacements. Uh, he's a little bit overweight. He's got hypertension on ACE inhibitors, has tablet-controlled diabetes. He presents to the hospital after eight days of symptoms, and that is the, uh, the average time that patients presented uh, according to the ISARIC study in the UK. He needs oxygen to maintain his saturation, his alert-oriented, his vitals are otherwise completely normal. He's got these, these lab results that you can see on the, on the screen. And very importantly, his values are that he wants to live at all costs, so he doesn't really mind going through... Uh, intensive therapy and, uh, and, and treatment he, he wants to live. Can I have the next slide? So imagine that in your hospital, at your institution, you've got three options uh, from this list uh, to, to give Mark. Um, what, are the, what are the options that you would choose? Um, and I would like to put up the uh, vote here, please. You can choose three. And while we are waiting for the um, for the poll results to to come, um, it is an interesting uh, thing that when we started to have uh, these patients in our hospitals, we did not have all these options. So um, if you do have these options now in, in your hospitals, then you are uh, uh, in, a, in a better place. So we've got, okay, that's, that's very interesting. That is, um, that is very interesting results. So 87% um, of the participants would give remdesivir. Um, 55% would give convalescent plasma and 87% would give corticosteroids to, to Mark. And then there is a, a, a much smaller percentage who would give uh, tocilizumab or anakinra or liponavir, ritonavir. Um, thank you very much. Um, can we go to the next slide, please? So you look at this slide and then I could actually finish my talk here because I just gave you all the, uh, all the clinical trials results uh, on, uh, on, on this slide um, with regards to mortality. And we have learned from the, uh, from the SCCM um, data and, and um, a publication which was uh, out very recently in critical care medicine that one of the most important endpoints, even patient-centered endpoint, is still mortality in COVID-19. So that's what I'm, uh, I'm concentrating on. Um, and the currently available data doesn't really support that there would be any difference uh, in mortality if we treat patients with lopinavir, ritonavir, with umifanovir, with faviparivir, uh, or with remdesivir, in fact. With tocilizumab and anakindra, we simply don't have any data for, from randomized controlled trials. Um, the two studies which are available for convalescent plasma, again, they didn't show uh, any different uh, between standard uh, care. And the corticosteroids, there is some evidence of benefit, and we will talk about that uh, a li little bit later. Next slide, please. 
So let's have a look at convalescent plasma because it is still one of the newest promises. Um, and, and it is based on some previous data from the H1N1 epidemic when uh, it was used with some success. And, uh, and that prompted the researchers um, and then the clinicians to, to try to use this modality. Um, and then we will see that, that what, what were the results. Next slide, please. Um, in this, in this JAMA paper, uh, which was an early study from China, and it was early in China, uh, early study in the, in the whole of pandemic, but it was a late study for China. So it has to be, it had to be terminated because they didn't have enough patients to, to recruit. And in this study, Lee and colleagues uh, found that uh, the patients who were remarkably similar in terms of age, sex, comorbidities to mark. Uh, so they, they had about uh, a median age of 65 with a, with a, uh, with a uh, male predominance and with three, uh, three comorbidities um, and with a standard care, which was not very much different compared to our standard care that we use in the UK, i.e. no other uh, treatment modifying drugs, um, they had not seen any significant difference um, in, in all patients when, when they looked at the convalescent plasma and the control. In the publication, what they have found, and, and one of the graphs which uh, then uh, caught the attention, um, and there was an editorial uh, accompanying this, this publication, in that, uh, in that graph, they seen that in the more severe end of the spectrum, there might have been some sort of a, a benefit. So there, there is a potential that we, we, we still see um, and we will still get some data and some good data from the convalescent plasma. Two small trials, or well, this was a small trial. And then the next trial, which, um, which is only uh, published in a, in a preprint format from, uh, from the Netherlands, um, looked at an even smaller number of patients, and that was terminated uh, because they didn't see any efficacy of the convalescent plasma compared to standard care. Now, in the, in the multicenter uh, Dutch study, the standard care was very, very different compared to our standard care in, in the UK. In the standard care group, uh, patients were receiving all sorts of other disease-modifying uh, agents like anakindra, tocilizumab. Uh, they, they did, uh, some of the patients did have um, hydroxychloroquine, et cetera. So um, that standard care was, was different to, to no uh, disease-modifying agent standard care. Um, and they also have found that the patients who they recruited, they did uh, antibody titers on uh, recruitment, and they found that a large percentage, about 80% of the patients already had antibodies um, before they had convalescent plasma. There is another issue with the convalescent plasma, and that is due to checking the quality and the quantity of antibodies in the, in the donor plasma. And that might have been another reason why the, the Dutch trial didn't show uh, any beneficial results because when they checked the, the donor titers, they were um, on the low end of the spectrum because these, uh, these plasma were collected from uh, donors who only had a mild disease. Next slide, please. So, in, in, a, in a small summary, the, the convalescent plasma is still the newest promise. Two small RCTs fail to show any benefit. I think we still need to find the right target population and we still might need to find the, the right donors for this convalescent plasma. And at this moment, I'm not really sure if it would be a, a real benefit to mark to, to give uh, convalescent plasma. There is a big question mark here. Next slide, please. Um, the, other, uh, the other drug that I would like to spend a little bit of uh, time on is, uh, is remdesivir. Um, it has been one of the, one of the first drugs which, uh, which was repurposed uh, for COVID-19. Um, and, uh, and there are two studies which are, which are showing uh, some effect of remdesivir. 
very recently, uh, two weeks ago actually, uh, Rochberg and, and colleagues put together a network meta-analysis um, in the BMJ, which will be updated uh, regularly if new data will become available. Uh, and I'm using their pictures to try to uh, put together that what remdesivir might do for COVID-19 patients. So what they found and what, what is the current best evidence is that it might be useful in the severe end uh, of the, of the uh, WHO um, spectrum. And Mark is on the severe end. He is, he is in the category uh, five on, on that, uh, that spectrum. So it is possible that if patients are, are having a high respiratory rate, they've got respiratory distress, they need oxygen, or they need, require, uh, they need uh, ICU admission, then they might benefit from, from remdesivir. Why is that? Can, can I have the next slide, please? There are two studies. Um, one is uh, the, the first one was the, the Wang study um, from China, and the other one is the ACTT1 study, um, which looked at the, the COVID-19 um, uh, patients. And then you can see that, that the, the two studies are similar, but different. In, in the Chinese study, uh, the mean age was a little bit higher. It was closer to, to the 65. So Mark is 69. So it, it is closer to, to that age. They didn't have many patients on mechanical ventilation. Um, and they had uh, quite a few patients with hypertension and, and about a quarter of them had diabetes. Uh, whereas in the ACTT1 study, uh, the mean age was uh, a lot lower. Uh, a lot more patients were on mechanical ventilation. So they, they, they were definitely at the more severe end of the spectrum. And these patients, they had more comorbidities. So they had more respiratory conditions. Um, almost a third of them had diabetes and, and almost half of them uh, had hypertension. Next slide, please. When you put together those data and what Rochberg and colleagues did uh, do a network meta-analysis and try to simulate the trial data results on a big database. And they have used the, the ISARIC uh, database, the ISARIC CCP um, database on over 40,000 patients. When they simulated those results, they found that there might be a mortality benefit uh, in the remdesivir uh, group. So this is a simulation. The direct evidence doesn't really show that, but if you, if you do a, um, a, a, a clever uh, network analysis, that there, is, there might be a signal that, uh, that remdesivir uh, could work and, and there is a mortality benefit. With that, there is definitely um, an increased risk of more serious adverse events compared to standard care. And I think that is, that is where Mark's values come into, come into play. He wants to live at all costs. So um, it doesn't matter if he, he, for him if he would experience more serious events, serious adverse events. Uh, but that is, that is something that we have to uh, bear in mind. There was, uh, again, in this network meta-analysis, uh, meta um, there was a little bit of signal for uh, lower duration of mechanical ventilation and, uh, and uh, what was present in the studies directly, uh, there was uh, less time uh, for until clinical improvement. So maybe, maybe there is, there is something in here. Next slide, please. So currently, based on the two studies that we have available uh, as randomized controlled trial, there is no direct evidence for mortality benefit from those studies. If we use uh, a network analysis of, um, uh, of, of, the, of the whole available data, then there might be some benefit and shorter time for clinical improvement, maybe more side effects. 
So it is potentially helpful for Mark uh, based, on, based on his values. Next slide, please. And we come to corticosteroids. Uh, a little bit of background to the corticosteroids, the DEXA ARDS study from uh, my friend um, Jesus Villa and, and his colleagues came out just before the, the pandemic started, uh, which sort of highlighted that the uh, dexamethasone might be useful um, in, in ARDS. Also, um, the 2017 SCCM, ESICM guidelines have advocated to use of, uh, uh, of corticosteroids in, in ARDS. However, and this was a big question mark when we went into the, uh, to the pandemic, we have known from um, different meta-analysis and, and from, from randomized controlled trials that there was a distinct increased risk of death in influenza pneumonia and the risk ratio was 1.31. So it was it was quite high risk of uh, of increased death rate in influenza pneumonia. So we didn't know what is uh, um, what is the best approach. Next slide, please. Um, in the UK, you probably I'm sure you have all heard about the the recovery study, uh, which is uh, a multicenter open label platform trial, uh, which is randomized evaluation of COVID-19 therapy. Next slide, please. Um, where we have recruited patients who had clinically suspected or proven SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, in 167 UK hospitals between March and June. And there were several arms of the study and is the dexamethasone arm which has been published. And we will come, come to that because this is a big criticism of, of the study from the inside that it's only the dexamethasone arm which, which has been published. But in that arm, we gave six milligram dexamethasone once daily, IV, NG or oral for 10 days. And, uh, and that was compared to standard care. The standard care in the UK between March and June for a variety of reasons was no other disease modifying agents. And we will talk about that because again, that is quite important. The primary outcome was 28 day mortality. Next slide, please. Um, and the results uh, of, the, of the dexamethasone armor in, in this study showed that those patients who were intubated or who had uh, oxygen needs, they definitely benefited from, uh, from dexamethasone. Those who didn't need any oxygen, there might be an evidence of harm for that. And overall, this was the, the, this was the drug which, which actually started to change how we treat COVID-19. Next slide, please. So when you think about what treatment might help Mark based on the current uh, randomized control trials, um, there are drugs which are unlikely. There is remdesivir, which may be, um, and corticosteroids, in Mark case, they are very likely to be helpful. Um, and we have no data on tocilizumab and, and anakindra to date. Next slide, please. Um, I should have had a poll question at the, at the end uh, where I would ask you the same questions, that if you've got the options where you, where you got drugs plus the option of enrolling Mark into a randomized controlled trial, and you have to select three, what would those be? Um, and I think I will leave you with, a, with, a, with that um, and a bit of thought, and then you can answer the poll. And after this, I'm more than happy to uh, answer questions with my fellow panelists. Thank you. And we'll, uh, we'll wait for all of the attendees to take their vote and, uh, and see, if, uh, see to what extent their opinions have changed after, uh, after Dr. Dr. Zakmani's talk. Looks like uh, more enthusiasm for uh, corticosteroids and randomized trials to me. Thank you. 
Excellent. Well, we do have some time uh, left over for some questions for our, our panelists. And again, thank you all three of you for, uh, for those great talks. Uh, enormously informative and very grateful. So if I could start out with Dr. Ake. So uh, we had a few questions in the, uh, in the chat and elsewhere. And if I could start with this one, there was a question about immunocompromised patients and what your thoughts are on how certain, because we, we've all certainly seen that uh, patients with underlying immunocompromise either overt, such as uh, uh, chronic requirements for high-dose high corticoids, or the, the less overt forms of immunoincompetence, such as, say, um, severe diabetes mellitus, are at increased risk of disease. What are some thoughts about how those populations might respond differently to a vaccine, such as, for example, in terms of development of neutralizing antibodies or T-cell responses, and how do you think that might inform vaccine selection? Yeah, thanks so much, Ryan. And I think um, there was also a, an element of that question with regards to the mRNA platforms. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to the extent that um, mRNA platforms rely on the ability to achieve levels of protein expression, um, I don't foresee those being particularly different than, you know, in immunocompromised individuals in terms of the ability to achieve the same levels of of, of drug expression, well, not drug expression, but protein expression um, from an mRNA, an, an mRNA platform. But um, so there I would anticipate that the types of decreased responses that you would see there um, would be comparable to the types of decreased responses you see in your protein subunit um, vaccines. And so I think, um, you know, just sort of thinking mechanistically about uh, mRNA, um, it could be analogous in that way. Um, I think, you know, one thing that's useful about these larger trials is that um, there is going to be an inclusion of diversity of individuals and even a preference for enrolling individuals who have a risk for developing um, moderate to severe uh, disease, because that um, is a major secondary endpoint for a lot of these studies. And so, um, you'll see that um, a lot of folks with diabetes mellitus, as long as it's not wildly under, under, you know, out of control, are going to be enrolled. People on chronic steroids, as long as it's not astronomical doses, will be enrolled. Um, stable HIV-infected patients will be enrolled. So I think, um, you know, profoundly immunosuppressed individuals, as in, in those you would anticipate any vaccine would have, issues, you know, we'll not see in these trials, but in terms of um, those with significant underlying comorbidities um, or moderate immunosuppression, we'll learn a lot in the coming months with the execution of the upcoming trials. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Bauman-Kreuziger, um, there have been a, a few questions about, you know, surrogate markers of thrombosis and uh, the extent to which we could use those to potentially guide therapy in patients without overt venous thromboembolism. So for example, D-dimer monitoring is a common practice in many institutions. And uh, I've certainly seen among my colleagues, and I suspect you have as well, uh, consideration for initiation of either intermediate or full dose anticoagulation when you hit some D-dimer threshold, say greater than 1,000. Is there any evidence to support this? And what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, thank you. Um, so the evidence, again, it comes from a suggestion of the early studies that D-dimer influenced mortality. Um, and there was a suggestion that in patients with a D-dimer level greater than six times the upper limit of normal, if they received anticoagulation, they had an improved mortality. But that was prophylactic anticoagulation. Um, and so it really speaks to the fact that uh, in many Asian countries that prophylaxis is not standard. And, and really they were looking at patients with um, very high levels. Um, I know that many institutions have those benchmarks and considerations. Um, and really what we should be doing, and the hard part about it is that some of these patients we can't image. So we're, we're using the D-dammer to suggest, okay, are they, um, is, there, is there worsening or potential for thrombosis present when we can't document it. And so I would, I would urge people that really the basis of especially therapeutic anticoagulation should either be on clinical trial, um, because there are several that are looking at that, 
Um, or if somebody has clinical suggestion that they may have thrombosis. So whether that be, of course, you know, swelling of the leg, decompensation rapidly um, from a respiratory standpoint to suggest a pulmonary embolism. And many places can get, for example, bedside echocardiograms to, to look for right heart strain. So I really think full dose anticoagulation should be either on study um, or uh, for clinical suggestion that there is a thrombosis present. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I, I know just speaking of my own practice, that I've seen that evolve very, uh, you know, very rapidly in, in real time, although it feels like years in COVID time. Uh, I'm early on a great deal of enthusiasm for full dose anticoagulation in, in ventilated patients and now much less so. So thank you very much. Um, Dr. Sakmani, um, can you comment in that you alluded to this a little bit, but perhaps amplify a bit on what you perceive as some of the limitations of the recovery trial? And I, I have to say in, in, in asking that, it feels, it feels like a profoundly ungracious question because I, I entered into the hearing the first results of the recovery trial with a great deal of skepticism because I'm, you know, I'm an intensivist, but I'm an ID doctor. And the, the idea of treating a viral pneumonia with, uh, uh, you know, with, with steroids is like fighting a forest fire with kerosene. And of course, the, 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 uh, similarly, the prior experience with, with influenza suggested evidence of harm, but the, the data is what the data is. And it certainly very rapidly changed my practice uh, along with many others. Uh, but just for, you know, for purposes of, of, you know, looking at what we know, what are some of your thoughts, sir? Um, I think the, the recovery trial was definitely not the perfect trial. Um, it, it, it resulted in practice change because we managed to, uh, managed to recruit a lot of, lot of patients and we, we have found uh, one, at least one treatment option, which, which is seemingly working, but it was not a perfect trial. What made, what made this not perfect trial better were the circumstances. And this is what I would like to allude to, that the standard of care in the UK um, when we were recruiting into the recovery trial was really no other disease modifying agent. And it was primarily because we didn't have access to any. So I was leading the REMAP-CAP trial as well. And also the recovery trial originally wanted to uh, evaluate interferon beta and anakindra as well. We simply didn't get those drugs. We, 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 we didn't have them. Uh, for the first... Uh, three weeks, uh, we opened the, the, the trial opened on the 9th of March, we opened the next week. And for the first three weeks of the study, I could only randomize patients into dexamethasone because the other treatment uh, arms, the drugs were simply not available. So we were not treating the patients with, with anything else. And I think that made the trial more robust. Although it was an open label study, there was nothing else that we could give or in, in an open label fashion. Um, I think as a as a as a as a lead for for the for the study um, at the local level, I am not happy that we practiced a press release medicine instead of proper uh, publications and and peer review. Um, so that is that is certainly a, a drawback. I think moving on, we are anticipating the next wave during the. Uh, during the winter in, in the UK. And what I hope that we can keep this spirit of we randomize almost every single patient who comes into the, um, to the hospital and definitely to my ICU into, into one of the randomized controlled trials because we still don't know what will work. And I, I think that would be my plea and message to, to everybody who is, uh, who is listening, that if you have access to a randomized control trial at your place, please randomize patients into, because that's how we will generate the knowledge. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, for what it's worth, I, I could not agree with you more, sir. I think that uh, it's interesting looking at convalescent plasma, and certainly there are a number of plasma trials, randomized trials that are underway now. But when you consider that there have been over 90,000 doses of plasma given in the United States alone, um, you know, getting robust trial data to support that uh, practice and identifying who's likely to benefit, just like with the dexamethasone data, 
that you and your colleagues generated uh, will be a, a huge advance, be it positive or negative. So thank you very much. And I guess I should check with Chess to see if we have time to take a few more questions or if we are done. We are at the top of the hour. I am going to make an executive decision to take, uh, take a couple more then. All right. Um, so for, for Dr. A, and this is more sort of a philosophical question, uh, any thoughts on human challenge models? That's been proposed as a way to accelerate, uh, uh, to accelerate vaccine development. And I, uh, and I think you and I probably both recall that there's a generation of military infectious disease physicians who participated in malaria human challenge models. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, and it's it's still a robust model that continues to do uh, trials um, for malaria products at the rear today. Um, but you know, uh, for COVID at this point, I, it, my honest opinion is it's a really bad idea. Um, you need to have a GMP produced challenge stock. You need to have a well, um, you know, uh, that produces a well characterized predictable infection, and you need to have a rescue drug, drug a reliable cure. Um, and we don't really have any of those things right now. Um, there was a really good editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine um, that talked about this um, and mentioned that pursuing uh, controlled human infection models for uh, seasonal coronaviruses might be a good proof of concept place to start. But at this point, by the time, um, you know, in, um, appropriate challenge stocks could be developed and all of the work done, um, we'll be getting readouts from our phase three trials, um, which is really more generalizable as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm not, not a big fan of the, of, of the human challenge uh, at this time. Thanks, Ryan. Hey, thank you very much, Julie. Uh, for Lisa, uh, so there have been a number of questions about, um, you know, just for defining for the group, uh, what does intermediate dose anticoagulation mean? And uh, I'll give you an example. I came on, I came on service uh, the other day and we had, you know, some people on so-called trauma dosing of anoxaparin, like 30 BID, some people on 40 BID, some people on 0.5 mg per kg BID. And uh, I made a joke to my, my residents about apparently we're using the random number generator today for uh, picking our Lovenox dose. Any thoughts? And, yeah. and, and I guess adjacent to that, 10A monitoring? Anti-10A monitoring. <laughs> All right, I'll try to I'll try to tackle both uh, in a in a concise way, um, and and we are we struggle with this because we're designing trials, right? So right. It, it's it is easy to just to denote what is prophylaxis, yeah. and it is easy to denote what is therapeutic, and basically everything else in the middle is intermediate. Um, the question comes, uh, so most of the time, it, you know, prophylactic dose of, of anoxaparin um, would be 40 milligrams once a day. Um, and, and so if you do that twice a day, that would be an intermediate dose. Definitely 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of anoxaparin would be an intermediate dose where one milligram per kilogram would be therapeutic. Um, where another controversy that hasn't been brought up yet is uh, in people with, uh, in extremes of weight, so um, obesity, and, and do, we, do we adjust um, our dosing uh, on that? So, so I, I think COVID and, and designing these trials, again, has brought up issues that we some haven't tackled yet. Um, from an anti-10A monitoring perspective, uh, I, did a, I did a review of this uh, several years ago, and although some places do use it, they're really the only data of support for that are in people with impaired renal function. Um, or uh, potential use in, uh, in pregnancy. So uh, routine use of, of anti-10A monitoring for uh, low molecular weight heparin has not been shown to be beneficial. Thanks. Yeah, wonderful, thank you very much. And I think we'll take one last one and I'll direct this to, uh, to Tomash. Um, so when we're looking at individual, individual drugs uh, in, you know, steroid group. Do you think there is anything special about dexamethasone or do you suspect this is more of a drug effect or a class effect rather? And then a little more broadly, you mentioned in the Q&A box uh, that the six milligram dose was a pragmatic dose, but DEXA-ARDS, a trial that I, I think actually kind of got swamped by COVID because uh, it seems like a study that would have drawn a lot more attention at the time. I think we're starting to rediscover it in part because of recovery. Um, 
uses a much higher dose with a longer tail. So as a two-parter, number one, is there anything special about DEX? Or let's say I'm running low on dexamethasone, would it be reasonable to administer methylprednisolone or prednisone uh, to patients as an alternative? And then secondly, is there potentially a role for higher doses in people with more severe lung disease, a la the DEXA ARDS? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. These are two really um, important and interesting questions. The, one, the first one is relatively easier to answer because there is a, another randomized control trial, the GlucoCOVID trial, which looked at um, methylpred. And mm. they showed very similar mortality benefits. So it does look like that it's a glucocorticoid effect. Um, and, and dexamethasone, in a, in a, in a way, it, it is one of the ideal drugs because it has got a long uh, biological half-life and, and it doesn't have a lot of mineral corticoid effects, which can, can throw problems. But if you, if you are running out of dex, dexamethasone, then, then glucocorticoids or primarily glucocorticoids most probably will produce the same, uh, same results. Um, the dose question, um, as I, as I said in the, in the chat, it is, it is, it was a pragmatic one and the DEXA-ARDS study actually used twice the dose. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it, at the moment, I, I don't know whether whether higher dose would be better um, or the lower dose was just eliminating the, the side effects um, and, and had the same same results. Um, the REMAP-CAP study, which is open in the, in the US as well in, in a number of institutions, is looking at different doses and different timings of, of steroids. It is, it is looking at hydrocortisone primarily, but that might answer the, the, the dose question because there is a, there is a dose, uh, dose dependence on, uh, on that. Um, and, and what we have seen and what we have done uh, in our own institution is that patients who were in the dexamethasone arm, but they still went on and they were not improving, then uh, some of them, they, they did have a pulse dose methylprednisolone uh, later on. Um, it is observational data and I really don't want to put any weight on, on, on what, what we have seen. Some got better, some didn't. Um, it, it, is, it is an unknown at this moment. Wonderful. Thank, thank you very much. I think that will conclude the time we had for questions. I do want to thank the, uh, the organizers for giving us a little extra time. There are a lot of other great questions and obviously with the topic of this scope and importance, uh, one webinar is not enough time to answer all the questions, but of course, this uh, webinar series is an ongoing weekly event from the American College of Chess Physicians, and we're hoping we'll have a chance to, uh, to answer more of them in the future. So I want to thank my three distinguished colleagues for taking the time out of their busy, busy work to, to share their, their insights and their knowledge with all of us. And thank you all the attendees for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much.